happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode 128 on March 27th, 2019. The EdTech Situation Room is a podcast where I discuss interesting news as it relates to technology and educational technology, along with my good friend, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you this evening? Good evening, Jason. I am thrilled to be here after a three-week hiatus. This may be our longest break in podcasting, so apologies to our cast of you know, dozens of fans, you know, if not hundreds, who knows? I don't, I, I actually have no idea because whatever little program I used to use to look at the S3 statistics, I don't use that anymore. And I don't think I pay for it. So anyway, it's good to be back. And I'm sure that we will uh, not even scratch the surface of the articles tonight, but it's good to be back. Agreed. And for those of you joining us for the first time, again, the EdTech Situation Room is a podcast where Wes and I talk about uh, technology news, usually from the, the lens of a classroom. If you are interested in taking a look at the source articles from our news every week, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, where you will find show notes in each week. And then later on, we'll talk a little bit about how you could stumble back into this podcast in case you are a first-time viewer. Now, as Wes said, we've been gone for a couple of weeks as we've both been in and out of town. There's some spring break action somewhere in there, and so there's a lot of news to talk about. But I thought we'd start with two kind of big topics that are breaking news this week because I think they are um, you know, kind of things that will impact the, the classroom. So starting off with um, the European Union, which is probably best known as the uh, area of the world that seems to be guiding Internet policy right now as it relates to um, privacy, security, and many other factors. The EU has passed a new set of copyright directives, and according to Forbes uh, uh, yesterday, um, basically it's going to be a lot more interesting on the Internet to publish and not violate copyright. Now, there's a lot of very nuanced ways of looking at these new EU directives, but the big one is that they are going to start holding platforms responsible for copyright infringement. So to give you a clear piece of how this works, uh, because of of safe harbor regulations and other uh, legal uh, uh, manifestations that the United States has pushed into internet regulation over the past 25 years, a person that, that hosts a platform, so think of it in terms of YouTube. YouTube is a platform that you publish your information onto. To this point, the person that's been responsible for violation of copyright has been the, the individual uploading the information. And what the new EU directives, copyright directives say, is that the platform will be as responsible than the individuals that are violating copyright in um, making sure that 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 copyrighted materials are not uh, published on a platform without permission. Now, as you might imagine, if you know anything about uh, kind of the, the ins and outs of copyright law for the last 25 years, as it's modified the digital age, this is a huge shift in the way we do things. And one of the reasons why something like a YouTube, but really uh, tons of platforms have relied on the fact that the individuals that are violating the copyright to start with have been ultimately responsible for copyright violations. And now that those platforms will be responsible, the argument could be from critics of these types of decisions is that content creators um, will be held less liable for that. And instead, platforms will need to answer to those copyright regulations, which could mean that the easy published platforms that we are used to as uh, users in 2019 could ultimately be very negatively impacted. So, Wes, I know this is something you uh, care very much about, in part because you yourself are a creator that utilizes a number of different platforms to publish your wares. What, is this, you, what do you think this means to you? Well, I'm afraid it's going to mean a more fractured global Internet because, you know, even with the GDPR, the general directive on um, privacy, was it privacy regulation, I think, for, for Europe? Um, you know, some newspapers just flat out said, hey, sorry, we're not, you know, in Europe or whatever, like things were just blocked. Like, hey, sorry, we, we, we're not complying with this yet. Um, and they, you know, just didn't make their website available to those countries. 
Um, Google, there's, there's, you know, some more things about fines and things like that, you know, related to monopoly, monopoly, monopolistic behavior, et cetera. You know, some of those things, I, I think they just, you know, linger in the courts for a long time and they probably end up getting settled. Um, but in some cases, you know, I think it was with Portugal in the last, you know, month or so, or, or with some of that article, they, they were basically, you know, threatening to just turn off news. Just, okay, we'll just, you know, ignore you. So, um, it's, it's really not, tenable to say we're going to be you know sign on the dotted line and be sure no one uploads any kind of copyrighted content on our platform at all and and even any objectionable content right with facebook live as a as a you know case study um they're really really struggling and what happened you know recently with with a terrorist event where the terrorist you know was broadcasting stuff and and they just struggled so much not only with i mean the live thing they were able to deal with but it's all the copies and and just you know we're talking we're talking thousands and thousands i think even per second i mean the way that these things have been automated so ai is not going to save the day any more than 5G is going to save the day for, you know, rural, you know, digital divide bandwidth connectivity issues. Um, and so I think that what we're risking is a further fracturing of the internet. Um, one of the fundamental ideas of the internet has been, uh, basically that you have the intelligence at the ends and then you have dumb wires in the middle. And so these packets are just transmitted. And while that ideal you know, in, in today's day of, of huge, you know, terabytes and petabytes and whatever of data, you know, I, I definitely get as a technology director and someone who worked for a, a telecom actually for a couple of years, you know, the need for quality of service and some network management and things like that. Um, I think that this is going to be bad for the global internet. And um, I think that we're going to, you know, see some, some, um, non-compliance on the part of, of some of the tech companies basically by saying, okay, fine, Europe. Um, I'm just going to turn my website off in your country. Um, but I don't know. Do you think that's a, a viable outcome or how do you see it? Well, uh, you mentioned the, the GDPR earlier uh, in your comments, and I have a little bit of, of insight on this because I had a, a few friends that were uh, uh, overseas when those regulations were put into place, and they were trying to get back to U.S.-based websites uh, while they were traveling, and one of two things happened. In one case, uh, actually in a couple of cases, they were sent to a very minimalistic version of website that had no advertising on it and just simple content, and I had a friend that said, because uh, it basically turned off all the tracking. The, the website was a lot faster. It was uh, just the news as opposed to the news plus advertising. But the majority experience from folks I know that were outside of the continental United States was that the websites basically ceased to function and in most cases were blocked completely because uh, they couldn't meet those regulations. And there was potential fines for U.S.-based companies that um, in uh, based in, in, in the European directives that that made it difficult for people to move around that without totally reinventing their websites. So let's not you know, let's not kid about this, that it might be a European regulation, but really the impact could be worldwide. And you mentioned earlier fractured Internet West. I think that's a very interesting way to look at that because that could very well be it. There's the European Internet and then there's everyone else's Internet. Um, the same is also true about U.S. decisions related to net neutrality. There could be a U.S.-based Internet and a, a, a the rest of the world. Um, there's already uh, uh, two Internets in terms of the Great Firewall of China because there happens to be a lot of websites that are generally accessible outside of China, um, but not always. And there's a large number of websites that can't make it through the firewall into China itself. And, you know, the promise of the Internet has always been for its, the 40 years of its existence is that everyone is treated the same on the Internet and everyone has a shot on the Internet to get its data to be transformed worldwide. And I agree. I think it's a very scary thing. Um, I think it's scary for creators that rely on these ubiquitous and free platforms to you know, broadcast their wares, whether it's audio-based information or video-based information, or theoretically that also applies now to the, the written internet, the gazillions of, of, of uh, words that are published each day on the less formal platforms uh, where people can publish their views and thoughts. And yeah, I do think it's a dangerous direction. 
and it doesn't really help anyone here. And, you know, like, let's think of, of blog comments, right? So I've hosted yeah. a blog since 2003. It's been a WordPress-based blog since 2005. Um, I have comments turned on. Um, I post critiques of things. And under these, cop- uh, what is it, something 13, right? Law 13 or whatever. Um, what's the name of it? It's anyway, in, under this, under these, these guidelines, um, you know, you're not, some of the fear around this was that like all internet memes will be dead. You know, you won't be able to take a small, you know, copy, which that is, that is not going to happen on the, the internet of the West. Uh, let's say, you know, of the United States. I don't, I don't think that they're going to chill, you know, every single, uh, website. Um, but, you know, will it have a chilling effect on people who want to create a platform, for instance? You know, are you going to have the capacity to either use algorithmic methods or human moderation in order to comply to, for this? Like, is that, you know, it, are the Amazons, Googles, Am, you know, Microsofts, Apples of the world the the only companies that are going to be big enough with the budgets large enough to try to comply with it, or will anyone be able to comply? And I kind of think we're at the point where no one will be able to fully comply, right. and those that attempt to are going to do it by significantly chilling the speech and and basically having you know some kind of moderation cue and and approval process. I don't, I don't know, but um, hopefully it's something that they can step back from. You know, I know we're not a political show and we're not going to you know go into depth about Brexit but isn't it interesting what's happening and continuing to unfold in Great Britain in terms of you know folks wanting to step back from the vote that was taken and maybe this will be something that Europe will want to take a step back from I I I think the ones to watch are it's Google right how is Google going to respond to this and are they going to try and comply or are they going to say something like I think they were saying to it was Portugal over Google news because there's all this anger and angst right over journalism. And there's a thought, I think on the part of some legislators, which resonates with, with, you know, some folks and probably not just in Europe that gosh, we need to save journalism and we need to support creatives and we need to extort money from these greedy, you know, Silicon Valley based tech companies who are making so much money on the backs of journalists that are putting out their content and really not getting you know, paid adequately for it. And certainly the demise of paid journalism, you know, is a reality in our disruptive technological age. However, I don't think regulation in this, you know, kind of uh, vein and context and, and you know, flavor, whatever, is uh, the answer to that. So it is definitely going to be something important to watch. And there's lots of great issues to talk about with students, right? From, yeah. from copyright to fair use, you know, to do you think you should be able to, I mean, fair use, uh, rules in the United States, should they be global? I mean, we've had debates over the, the universal declaration of human rights, you know, are human rights universal or are they contextual, right? If I'm in Saudi Arabia, do I truly, you know, and, and I'm a woman, do, you know, should I have the rights, uh, you know, equivalent to a man? I think that you should, irrespective uh, of your your gender identification, I think you should have equal rights no matter where you happen to be. So um, it's interesting how fair use and the ability for people to post content and express themselves. Uh, basically, this is going to lead to not just a global debate about that, but actions on the part of of the large tech companies, especially. Um, to see how they're going to respond. And the interesting thing is, they could respond by simply, you know, turning off their their uh, website accessibility. And that, that'll be something interesting to see if it, even WordPress and other kinds of platforms offer that as an option, right? If you publish um, today on Amazon as an independent author, which I have done and need to do more of in the months to come, you can choose to make your book available in different countries. Um, and then there's different, you know, payment, you know, you can set different prices and whatnot. Um, and Apple is the same way with iTunes. It's very interesting, like when you're trying to say, okay, you know, you can make things, I think, just equivalently say, you know, this is going to be $10 US, make that whatever it is in, in Japanese yen or whatever. <clears throat> but it kind of, it does make you a little more aware, kind of jars you to like, that's right, this is an international thing. And uh, those companies that are helping, you know, indie publishers are doing things to enable you to comply with those laws and 
in some cases, perhaps, you know, taxes and things like that uh, in terms of things that are being put put in there and, and they're taken care of. But it is a global Internet. I definitely believe that the global nature of the Internet is one of the most powerful things about it. Right. Um, we've not had. I think we've only had one person. No, Peggy responded to. And shout out to Peggy, who is not having the, uh, daylight savings time in Arizona, and I think was expecting us an hour later. So yes, we were uh, coming at you an hour earlier now <clears throat> that the rest of the country has uh, moved into daylight savings time. Um, but um, and that made me completely lose my train of thought. So there you go. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, the point the point being, I think that um, you know these are. Like I, I, I read a, an interesting article a couple of days ago. She was an article, it was a series of tweets back and forth regarding uh, the frustration that some teachers feel about their colleagues that maybe aren't willing or able to become a little more tech savvy in the way they, they approach their, their classroom or, or activate helpless on the technology piece. Um, I think stuff like this is going to be important to understand from the standpoint of uh, knowing where technology is going, uh, particularly in, in, the, in the medium to long term future. And I do think that when we have ubiquitous platforms available that allow us to publish, uh, that comes at, at a price that we've, we've talked about here in the podcast. Or I think some other articles today that might go to that. But I, I do think it's an important thing. And it just seems like in the last 24 months or so, we have spent a lot of time kind of dismantling the internet that got us to this time period, right? Like the internet has been such a powerful force, um, sometimes for good, sometimes for not. But in any case, it's been extraordinary in the way it's, it's, it's evolved and it's helped nudge our culture in this direction or another. And, um, you know, I think at some point, uh, you know, it could be a bridge too far when we keep adding pieces to break it apart. So, indeed. All right. Well, hey, let's let's talk a little bit of Apple. Um, we had a major Apple event this week, which was really a bizarro Apple event. But yeah. before saying a couple words about that, um, I put a, an article by Rolling Stone from March 16th in the show notes. It's called Inside GarageBand, the little app ruling the sound of modern music. And it really is a wonderful article talking about how many uh, mainstream and uh, very you know, popular music artists have found the ease of use of GarageBand phenomenal for being able to get the ideas in their head, you know, into, you know, out of their head, basically, uh, you know, onto, um, you know, the, the screen in terms of, of musical notes or, or beats and rhythms. And anyway, it's a delightful article. And, I think we'll probably have some Apple bashing tonight. I mean, you know, whatever Apple says anything, there's going to be criticism. Uh, but, and, and it, there's, it's, you know, there's warranted criticism. But I, but I want to just begin the conversation about Apple with a huge shout out to how awesome that GarageBand continues to be a, an incredibly powerful pro program for unleashing musical creativity, completely free on the Mac platform. Of course, if you buy the Mac. Uh, but also available on, you know, the iOS platform for iPhones and iPads. And that's a lovely article. So I did watch part of the Apple event this uh, past Monday. And what the heck? You know, basically four products that were that are not available now. 40 minutes of, you know, lots of celebrities, you know, talking about their shows. Also, I mean, to break them down, Apple... Um, News. I mean, I'm I'm against walled gardens, right? And I do not use Apple News today on my phone for free because when you share a link, it has to go into Apple News and it doesn't allow people, as far as I know, who don't have Apple News to be able to see them. So I am not excited about Apple News. I do not think Apple is going to be the savior of the of the industry. I also really question with 300 magazines or whatever, I mean, how much money are those journalists going to actually make, you know, when the subscription cost is being distributed among all of them? Um, I do think the Apple Arcade is incredibly interesting and we might talk more about Stadia, which is the new Google streaming platform that they announced two weeks ago um, because gaming is massive and it's going to continue to be massive. Um, I am interested in the fact that Apple TV, this is a big play. It's overall a big play for services, right? And so Apple, you know, sees the declining sales of iPhones and understands that services are the future. And so they're moving in this direction. Um, and I think the most compelling part of the whole deal, if you haven't seen it, is, well, two parts. It was really cool to see Steven Spielberg there live and, you know, his introduction. And he's such a, he's just incredible. 
Um, I didn't watch the whole thing, by the way, but I did see after the fact the part that Oprah, you know, talked about with a billion devices. And it's going to be really interesting to see creatives look at this sort of platform. But my overall thought is fractured, right? Today on Netflix, any of us who subscribe probably have access to a larger batch of media than we're ever going to have on Netflix because Netflix was not mentioned at all in that Apple event and, and, and keynote um, because this is a competitor in terms of, of Apple TV. This also makes it even more confusing to say the words Apple TV because at school, you know, I've had teachers when I've said, okay, we, I think we can put an Apple TV in your room really confused when I, when I don't show up with a, with a large flat screen television you know, and, and, and hook something to their projector because the TV is separate. Now, <laughs> Apple TV, I was shocked to, to see, is going to be bundled not only in smart TVs, but also on the uh, Amazon Fire Stick and on Roku devices. I don't know that you're going to be able to airplay, so wirelessly send content from an iOS device or a macOS device, you know, to that Roku or that Fire Stick, but you're going to be able to stream content and so you don't have to buy the $150 plus and more if it's going to be 4K, you know, box in order to have Apple TV. So, you know, overall, I guess I would say it's interesting. But what I've always found most interesting about Apple actually are the products. And this wasn't about products. And so, meh, I'm, I'm not, not very excited by it. So what say you, Dr. Neifer? Well, so I, I, Interesting you ended up on that notion of that this was about wasn't about products, about services. And we've reported on this podcast uh, a dozen times that in forecast uh, calls related to stock prices and in leaks and in all sorts of news, there's been this notion that Apple wants to move towards services because, you know, iPhone sales are slowing down. Uh, their market share of laptops and desktop computers is decreasing, um, although their overall sales are increasing uh, uh, as uh, uh, desktop and laptop computers make a bit of a resurgence, but something interesting happened about a week and a half ago, which was, I guess it was two and a half weeks ago now, that uh, it was leaked from Apple that the event that, that Dr. Fryer is talking about, the services event, um, would be uh, just the services only because they didn't want to distract with hardware announcements. And as it turns out, last week, Apple made a series of hardware announcements. Nothing uh, earth-shattering. There was a, there's a new um, I'm, iPad mini that starts at $399 that allows for uh, Apple Pencil uh, compatibility. So that's interesting, a relatively low price for that device. Um, Apple updates iMacs for the first time in, I think, two years. The regular iMac, we're not talking the iMac Pro, but the regular uh, uh, aluminum-cased iMac is now updated with, uh, uh, again, faster processors and then also um, new graphics processing units, which would make these platforms faster. There's also AirPods 2 released. Um, the, the reason why this is interesting to me is because, for me, I think I agree very much with Wes, the hardware was always a more interesting fascination to me than the software. And um, part of that's because that other than the operating system itself, so we're talking about, um, you know, OS 10 and or I guess what they would call Mac OS now and also iOS on the mobile devices, like that functionality was interesting to me, but the hardware itself is where I thought Apple was the most innovative. Software used to have kind of that it just works thing going for it, right? But the fact that they're taking hardware updates, which is really all Apple has left, right? Very rarely are they announcing a very innovative new hardware uh, piece because they just don't have much to offer anymore. They've really mastered um, most of these. You think glasses are next, Wes? Yeah, Amy Webb, the futurist, says we're at peak iPhone because the future yeah. is going to be on our screen, or, or sorry, on our, our lenses, you know, and so yes, Apple is going to be a huge player in AR, VR, and eventually we're going to see with batteries and miniaturization and, and 5G and da-da-da-da-da, um, the ability to be able to have uh, the screen as large as your field of view can take right. it because it's going to be on your glasses. But that is not a play that's going to happen in the next couple of years. It's, it's a ways off. Right. And, you know, that in the meantime, um, you know, with, with iPhone sales slowing down, I also tell you that for, from a personal family experience supporting a mostly iOS family, 
um, you know, these phones are lasting for, for, for two, three, four years minimum, right? The battery is oftentimes an issue, but it's really easy to get a third party to replace the battery. And oftentimes those batteries are fairly high quality. Um, the other factor we haven't talked about as much on the podcast, but I also think impacts this. Uh, I think in the United States, at least, phone sales are slowing down because carrier subsidies don't exist anymore, right? Four or five years ago, um, carriers started moving away from this notion that they would pay for the majority of an expensive device in exchange for you signing a one to three year contract uh, in order for you to promise to pay a little more every month to help cover the cost of that device over two to three years. Um, all the major carriers have abandoned that, although all of them will usually offer some kind of trade in deal or way for you to update relatively easily. So there's just not this notion anymore that every two to three years you can get a relatively inexpensive new phone with all the latest on there. People can rely on these devices for, you know, more than than the two to three year time period. And, yeah, we'll see. I did not watch any of the keynote. Um, I did uh, read a lot of various accounts of it, including um, uh, some fairly critical uh, accounts of Oprah showing up to the event and saying that and part of it's because it just there's a lot of things that seem out of place about the television service and the direction they're going into. Um, I am excited to see that the new uh, Apple streaming service is compatible with other hardware architectures. So the Roku um, uh, platform, um, Amazon Prime or the Amazon devices that are Fire TV devices, it's compatible with that. And that's a phenomenal compromise, right? That I think, um, Tim Cook, what did, they, what did, uh, Trump call him? Like Tim Apple or something or <laughs> Apple Cook or something. Uh, anyway, um, he brokered it directly with, yeah. um, with, uh, Bezos, with Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. So like that's, that's actually fantastic. I mean, as an Apple TV user and someone who I literally use my Apple TV every day, um, you know, both in my office at work as well as the one I have at home. Um, Hey, good. It's a cat interlude. And now a moment for our pet. So, yeah, I, I, I'm excited for that. I think it's a good call on their part. Um, although I'll tell you that if you want to read funny reviews, go to, um, uh, go to the Play Store on Android and look for the Apple Music app and the, uh, the volume of hate that Android users pile upon that particular app, which is now owned by Apple, the former Beats Music Service. Uh, it is an interesting phenomenon that I don't know if it will take off for the Android faithful. Um, and I don't know, like, I don't understand the service enough yet to say whether it really di- differentiates itself from Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or my other options. Do you, yeah, Tim Apple, Peggy, uh, clarifies. Are you a Amazon Fire Stick owner? Have you played with that? I, I haven't yeah. actually ever used that as I've used Chromecast and I have one, you know, in uh, one of our rooms, but not the, the Fire Stick. So what do you say to that? Is it a good platform? It is a decent platform. Um, I was actually an early adopter because I was offered an opportunity six months beforehand to, um, it had been announced, but to be an early tester. Um, and I received a, a pretty cheap one to, to kind of test out with. I mean, the hardware is quite modest in that it's slow, although I am using one now, but I think it's probably four. It's, it's probably four years old this summer. Um, and so it is the, the, the first generation of that hardware, but you know, you don't need it to be that fast to stream media, right? So, uh, the interface has uh, updated, uh, several times since I purchased the Fire Stick and it looks more like the Apple TV interface now, which I think is to its, uh, credit. Oh, and. No, go ahead. Uh, and, you know, and it's it's a perfectly sufficient platform for subscribing to something and, and streaming media. On a school note, all right, so we're, and I need to write this post. We've been using a service called ScreenCloud, ScreenCloud Signage. Um, I'll put, uh, I'll, I'll drop the link because I'm sure Peggy will want to immediately implement digital signage at her home using it. Um we, uh, we've done a bunch of different things with signage. You can use different players. We're using Chromebits. But I think the more affordable way to go with that is now to use the Amazon Fire Stick. And, uh, of course, Google's matured in their free signage options that, that you can, you know, use without a subscription. So that screen cloud is something that you pay for and then you have to have the device. But anyway, that 
anyway, at some point we can segue perhaps into, into talking about Stadia and streaming gaming because that's that's also related to all this, right? I mean, it's weird we've <clears throat> acquired a, an Xbox One in the last you know few months at our house, not playing it really all that much. But anyway, the future of gaming, where all that goes. Do you need a multi hundred dollar game system console or Will a $30 Chromecast and a controller, you know, with this high-speed internet meet your needs? Yep, absolutely. And then uh, I guess I would also note a couple of uh, other articles. Um, the Verge was pretty critical of the, the Air, um, uh, the AirPod release. If for no other reason, they were talking about wireless, uh, uh, wireless charging, other phenomenon there that they feel are misfires. And then this is a, a more recent article. Um, this is actually one of the reasons why that a, a Mac laptop would not be a new Mac laptop would be on my purchase list right now. Um, Apple is apologizing for once again, uh, keyboards on their high end, uh, Mac laptops are notoriously failing, um, in a variety of different ways. And, uh, in some cases, keys stop working and they're, they're good about replacing, um, you know, the, the hardware when it, it, it malfunctions, but, the bottom line is that it's still problematic, right? Like for the price you're paying for these laptops, they just don't seem premium if they break at this rate. And as a tech director, I can speak to that because we've got about 95% of our faculty on Mac laptops. And so we've, we've opted to stay with the last generation 2017 MacBook Air, which has the, you know, USB A, uh, connectors because, hey, a lot of people still have old, old school flash drives. Remember these, um, you know, smart boards, et cetera. And, uh, we have definitely, I have definitely been upset <laughs> seeing some keyboards fail and some different issues like that, because you basically have to replace a, a large component, which costs hundreds and hundreds of dollars. In fact, earlier this year, right after some of our, we don't buy the extended warranty. And so right after that warranty expired, you know, we, we had, I think, two different machines. It's not enough that we buy the extended warranties and Apple still has a great return on investment. But it is frustrating that all of the new hardware does not allow for us to crack it open without violating the, um, you know, warranty. And, you know, we can't update RAM. We can't put in a new solid, larger solid state drive. Um, and so anyway, this is, this is basically the Steve's jobs, the Steve jobification of Apple hardware and Wozniak's vision continuing to lose out, um, where, you know, you, you have to basically replace the whole device and you can't crack it open and, and DIY it in many ways. So that said, we are not abandoning the Mac platform. And I do think it has fantastic return on investment, but there's a lot to weigh and consider, especially when you look at Chrome and other kinds of options in the security environment, yada, 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 that we have to contend with. Yep, absolutely. So um, let's jump maybe to a public service announcement, uh, a reminder from TechCrunch on March 20th, 2019, uh, Windows is 7 is nearing its end. The long-running uh, popular operating system that was in, in many ways the heir apparent to Windows XP, which was end of life a few years back, uh, Microsoft making a much more aggressive push towards having people update to more modern operating systems. Um, the, um, the uh, You probably have popped up uh, a notice if you're on Windows 7 still, but January 14th, 2020 is when Microsoft will stop rolling out security fixes uh, for flaws and vulnerabilities in the operating system. And a very uh, important piece here because of my observation working with schools, both in context of my day job and also as a professional development guy, that a lot of well-run districts like to find a version of an operating system and stick with it as long as they possibly can, even if uh, newer versions of the operating system are available or arguably better, because it's easier to manage the single operating system. And I know a lot of districts that are locked on Windows 7, they have not made the update to Windows 10, which has been available since fall 2015, and in a few short months, Windows 7 will no longer be considered an updated or secure operating system. And that is absolutely huge, right? We saw 
in the last six to eight months, I don't remember when it was exactly, you know, a major flaw for Windows XP and Microsoft actually released a patch for an operating system. They said, we're not going to, you know, support it all, release it all. Um, we made the jump this last summer for every single one of our Windows platforms at school to go ahead and move them to Windows 10. Now with the October 2018 snafus, if we can use an incredibly tactful and friendly term for what was a freaking nightmare and <clears throat> caused me, you know, 50 plus hours probably of work um, because of display bricking that happened on our all-in-one Dells that had not had a firmware update and, you know, we're not friendly with the uh, Microsoft um, hardware. It's been a good transition overall, okay? I think probably other schools that are running that kind of hardware that's like four to five years old, they still are on Windows 7. Dell had not apparently heard of, of people having the same kind of an issue, which we had on two different labs, right? So we're talking 40 different machines. But um, it's a big deal. You know, security patches and updates are so important. And we need to pay attention to this. Um, we are probably not the only school out there that has been running some older versions of Office. You know, on the Mac platform particularly, they've become much more persistent and nagging to say, hey, this software is not updated and it's not supported and you need to buy a new version. And I know it's painful to think about, you know, subscribing at what, $39 a head for the, you know, first tier, you get the client-based software of Microsoft, of Microsoft Office 365. But anyway, that is just part of the journey that we're on. And so anyway, it's this, this is something if you are involved in technology at all, or you're an administrator, we need to be aware of. You do not want to be running software that is not receiving any kind of security patches at all. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that you're not... I don't know, there's some kind of, there's a due diligence issue here. And hey, maybe you need to run Neverware and run Chrome or, you know, you need to do something else, but don't run an operating system that's no longer receiving patches. End of rant. Yep, absolutely true. And, you know, the other piece of it is, well, one thing I will say, if you are someone that's on Windows 7, managing either a lot of systems or you yourself are just on Windows 7 as a, as a private user, Windows 10 is a pretty solid operating system. I would say that, yeah. I wouldn't say it tempted me back from Macworld because the, the bottom line is is that I, I do use a Windows uh, platform part-time at work. I also do a Mac one, but I've, I'm now on Chrome OS almost full-time, especially um, when, when I am um, uh, utilizing a laptop. But the bottom line is, is that Windows 10 is pretty good and it is a better operating system, in my opinion, the Windows 7. I think it's evolving in a good and positive way, and it feels very modern and crisp, and I can tell you that even older hardware runs it pretty well. Um, I have a couple of uh, eight-year-old desktops at work we use for projects uh, that are running Windows 10, and with eight gigs of RAM and a solid-state drive, it is it feels crisp and modern and, and very usable even for a power user. So um, if you are worried about this date, it, if for no other reason than um, you uh, I just don't know the operating system, I can assure you that Windows 10 is a, a, a worthy upgrade from Windows 7. I would, however, uh, 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 wipe your machine and start from scratch. The update process adds a lot of gunk that's not super great. Yeah, definitely. And that's a great advice for anybody, um, which, by the way, I mean, we're, we're having such an uptick of phishing this month, of phishing attacks. I just had to send out an email to all our faculty staff, and it's one of my geeks of the week, um, as I posted a, advice on my blog. I mean, we need to help people be able to wipe their devices, whether it's your smartphone, it's your laptop. I mean, this is the way to remain secure today is periodically blow away your entire system, install it fresh, and then, you know, add your files and, and the, the other programs that you need. I would love to talk about Huawei, China, and 5G briefly. Um, again, we haven't been online for a little while, and so these are a couple weeks old, but I don't normally do this, but there's a, a French post, and I think I probably retweeted or Twitter recommended or whatever, um, this person, uh, Le Monde, um, who is a, let's see what his, he's a historian, senior advisor for Asia, uh, non-resident senior associate for Carnegie Endowment. Anyway, um, he has a his take on Europe's re reappearing fractures in front of China, Huawei, 5G as a test. 
I think these are headlines that most Americans are asleep to, right? The CFO of Huawei, which is the largest handset manufacturer and uh, in um, the world, I think, and is a Chinese-based company that a military fo- person you know, founded, and, and we've got all kinds of suspicion, not only in the United States, but also in other, kind, in other Western democracies uh, for their hardware, um, you know, has been under uh, arrest in China, or sorry, in Canada, and uh, has been facing extradition to the United States because of a breach of, um, you know, I think UN sanctions against sending stuff to Iran. We talk about a fractured internet and what's happening today. Um, today, right now, there's all kinds of, of, uh, hubbub over the implementation of 5G networks, which by the way are not going to happen tomorrow. It looks like it's going to take what I heard on Twit last week, I think four to five years to get 30% of the United States on 5G. I mean, this is not going to revolutionize everyone's connectivity in the next year. Um, but anyway, his, his article and it's, you know, translated from French is pretty interesting talking about really how Europe is being courted by China and how Europe may or may not go with the United States and quote the West. I mean, Europe is part of Western Europe is part of the West, but go with the United States, you know, Australia, other countries. Go ahead and install Huawei Chinese based hardware in 5G, um, infrastructure. And if I'm reading this right, I mean, a lot of the fear of this is that China will be able to flip a switch and get all that data and and be able to extend their surveillance state, you know, out into the 5G airwaves of whatever country has has implemented their technology. The way in which China is strategically positioning itself to be dominant in the world economically um, and in terms of trade and also in terms of geopolitics, I think is highly underestimated. And I've put a link here to a wonderful interview on Triangulation, which is one of the Twit Network's podcasts. And I have not actually listened to, I don't know, this might have been the first one, but it's basically an hour-long interview with one author. And so Amy Webb is now my favorite futurist, and she has a new book called The Big Nine, and it's looking at Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Huawei, these different companies that are kind of defining the future defining the present today. And so the overall takeaway here is, number one, listen to Triangulation 387, and that's the interview with Amy Webb. It's a fantastic uh, podcast interview from March 1st um, that will really stretch your mind. And second of all, I think we ought to be paying attention to what's happening with Huawei and China. Um, I don't know that we're going to, you know, as individuals do anything advocacy wise, but in terms of being awake to the realities of international geopolitics and the ways that we in the West need to look at the long game that China is playing, as I'm trying to do this, looking at your cat's tail. Um, <laughs> for those of you listening to the show, you're, you're missing, you know, the, you're missing a visual extravaganza. No, it's fine. Um, anyway, it's, We've talked before on the show about Tristan Harris and Noah Harari's uh, interview with, uh, you know, Wired Magazine, Harari's book, you know, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, the idea that Western liberal democracy is not uh, equipped to deal with the kind of surveillance capitalism that's available today. And specifically, when you look at China and the long game that they're playing, you know, economically. So I don't know, Jason, am I... Is this something anybody should be concerned about? I mean, we're here. We're we're in the United States. Why should we worry about China? Huawei? Who are they? I can't even buy their handsets here. Should you know? Should I be concerned at all about any of that? Well, it's a manifestation of how things aren't the way they used to be, right? Like that's uh, the, the globalization has obviously been an incredibly important part of the discussion of world economics for the past 20 years. And, you know, again, not a political podcast, but part of what has happened in the last uh, four years has been a you know frank discussion about the impacts of a worldwide economy on a former um, you know, uh, completely dominant economy like the United States. And I think that, you know, the thing to remember is that politics and economics uh, and, and particularly trade are intermixed quite substantially. And I don't really, I, I don't, I don't have a thought here. I, I feel like that I'm still watching the, the story unfold of whether Huawei is a, a true risk or not, or if it's, 
you know, just profit gathering or it's actually a, a chance at greater control of the outside world for China uh, to a Chinese company to go and build the 5G networks of substantial areas. Uh, Wes, I don't know if you saw that Huawei has made an agreement with Italy uh, to substantially build out, uh, I believe, their 5G networks and provide infrastructure there, which is, uh, uh, you know, amongst a number of other issues uh, ticked off the EU. So I, I think there's there there's definitely things to keep an eye on there. And um, does it impact the end user? Not directly. Of course it doesn't. Right. Because there's actually a lot of political things that impact uh, uh, the networks and equipment and you know, whether things are fast or super fast or slow, uh, uh, in the United States, there's a lot of politics around rural access, uh, to internet, a uh, high speed internet and, uh, the lack of funding for very rural areas to get access to high speed, uh, modern internet speeds. But in the end, it always does ultimately impact you as an end user. So uh, I would say this particular issue, we should continue to monitor closely in hopes that we can get to the truth and find out what really is happening in regards to these technological uh, uh, news bits. And I think we need to pay attention to China. And I mean, as we struggle in our open, more open society um, and hopefully liberal democracy, you know, Republican, not political party, but thinking of uh, a representative democracy, um, we struggle with with these issues of fake news and control and free speech and all these kinds of things. The long game that China is playing is um, something that we seem ill-equipped to be able to do because we have such a short-term focus and we're so, you know, focused um, on things that are that are happening in the next you know, year or four years, we're not thinking about the next 40 years and 50 years. And so with the president for life that they have in China, um, anyway, listen to Amy Webb. And if you do, Hey, give me a shout out. Let me know. Uh, I'd love to hear what your, your thoughts are. Cause I really do think those are, those are powerful ideas that really stretch our minds. I don't have a link here in the show notes. Maybe I'll do it next week, but, um, Amy gives a great South by Southwest presentation about future trends, a little bit like the, uh, Horizon Report, if you're familiar with that. And I don't know if that's continuing, but it's yeah, the, the Horizon Report, Horizon K-12, all those things, those were fantastic to be able to look at emerging trends and what kinds of things might, you know, be affecting us in, in the next six months, in the next, you know, two years. Etc. The event horizon of technology. So, anyway, let me know if you end up listening to that. Well, let's do. So we have time. Probably, probably one more big one. Um, I there's an article that was I think it's two weeks old now that uh, actually caused a little bit of interesting discussion on Twitter when I posted it. Uh, this is an Atlantic article from March 14, 2019, noting a trend that's that's not surprising to me at all, having uh, been in classrooms with Google Docs implemented, but the hot new chat app for teens, according to the Atlantic, is Google Docs and. Um, the chat feature on Google Docs has replaced a lot of other platforms for having kids uh, talk to one another. And um, I, if you are a, a tech-savvy parent of a teen, if you are a teacher that's paying attention to one-to-one Chrome environments, this is not something new. Um, and in fact, has been a, a factor ever since these uh, tools were rolled out in the classroom environment. In fact, my first opportunity to see people uh, abuse Maybe the uh, uh, the platform in this way was actually at a professional development event with teachers. I was uh, uh, assisting someone in teaching a an initial Google Docs training, and <laughs> two people in the crowd were complaining about uh, the the presenter in the chat, not realizing that other people could see it. And then a whole embarrassing thing ensued and it was not super great, but like that, that's a reality of the platform. And I think this is an important article, not because, oh, woe is me, we should ban Google Docs, but we just need to be really aware when we adopt such powerful tool sets that are built around collaboration, that students are likely to collaborate whether they're collaborating on the topic at hand or not. Now, I received a couple back channels about this article. I think some people have read this that it's a negative or that I'm posting a negative thing about Google Docs. Let me be super clear that I would lay in traffic for the Google suite, right? Like it's been such an incredible part of my workflow and, and my professional and personal life. Um, but I also think that we cannot throw or put our heads in the sand as technology integrators and advocates 
that there are times when these tools can be used for nefarious purposes. And um, I had someone uh, a note to me on Twitter that, um, you know, this proves that students, you know, uh, uh, really want to be uh, in connection with one another and they, they, they absolutely thrive in an environment where they can collaborate, yada, yada, yada. I think that's generally true, but that's not what this article is saying at all. Um, and in fact, I don't think uh, just giving students these tools to work on with with a content focus is necessarily going to bring the positive results you're looking for because kids, uh, it's age appropriate for kids to screw around. It's age appropriate for kids to be distracted uh, by relationships with their peers that are not content uh, related. And it's interesting that this particular uh, 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 article mentions note passing because when uh, Dr. Fryer and I were kids back in the 1930s, this is all we had to work with, right? There was no chat app available to us when we went um, uh, uh, to high school. We had no literal note passing, right? That was part of this process. Um, you know, I think we both probably craved collaboration then too, but I, you know, I, I don't think that's that's because teachers weren't utilizing the power of note passing uh, in the classroom. So Wes is a tech director. What's your, your perception of this issue? It's interesting. Um, I just saw that um, for Google Vault, Google uh, G Suite admins need to make a decision about archival duration, uh, retention policy for Hangouts and the new Hangouts and the ways in which that is morphing. Um, I think it's really important to let parents know um, um, I have, unfortunately this last year, I was not able to attend as many of our beginning year parent orientation sessions, but I think it's really incumbent and important upon, you know, schools that are providing kids with access to the G suite and to other kinds of tools to help parents realize what are you doing? You know, what are your, what are our kids going to be able to do? Um, we don't turn email on until fifth grade for students. But, you know, the tools within Google Docs that allow for chatting and these kind of things, um, hey, guess what? Kids can bully in any kind of interactive forum. So it's important to let parents know about it. You need to decide as a school what you are going to turn on, you're going to turn off. And then you also need to empower users as well as, you know, think of students and then also parents to know what the options are, right? And so for some of those kind of things like Hangouts chat, um, you can choose to turn that off and not, you know, be interrupted with those kinds of pop-ups. And it's an ongoing opportunity for digital citizenship conversations that we need to be having um, because, hey, guess what? The interactive web is here. We called it Web 2.0 in the you know mid-90s, and it was like this big thing. Now it's ubiquitous and, and pretty much mainstream, but that doesn't mean um, – you know, it's not fraught with challenges and an op, you know, need, needing to have opportunity, you know, things to, that we talk with parents about. Let's do a couple of quick hits before we do Geeks of the Week as we approach the top of the hour. Um, my first one is going to be uh, Verge article, March 27th, FTC hands multi-million dollar fines to four robocalling companies. I'm glad to see the FTC doing something that might possibly help consumers because I am absolutely not a fan of basically any appointed, you know, person in the executive branch right now in the government, I don't think. But um, this is a, a good thing. I do not think it's going to completely stem the flow. I don't know about you, but I just about can't answer any call that's not, you know, someone in my contacts on my phone today because it is freaking ridiculous. So I'm glad to see the FCC doing that. What's your quick hit? Uh, Firefox released Firefox Lockbox this week, which is an application that allows you to use safe passwords in Firefox on your mobile device, both Android and iOS. And I will say that although Firefox is missing one or two critical pieces of functionality that would prevent me from using it full time, not to mention... I use a Chromebook most of the time. I like that Firefox keeps releasing more and more applications with their privacy-minded uh, shtick that allow you to do the advanced things that I think are really great on a mobile phone. I'm a LastPass user personally. I love LastPass to store passwords. I have installed um, on my Android phone. It allows me to use a... Uh, I think fingerprint because I have a fingerprint scanner on my phone to uh, authenticate that. So it's quick and easy for me to get access to my super secure 20 character random, gener randomly generated passwords. 
Um, but I think that's all a kind of a good good phenomenon for us to shoot for. So cheers to the folks at Firefox for releasing more useful apps that can help up people's security game. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Another quick hit. Um, Google, um, you put, I think, the article from The Verge, Stadia is about the future of YouTube, not gaming. Um, I dropped in a video link from The Verge, which is fantastic, called Google Stadia wants to be the Netflix of gaming. Like, we all need to be paying attention to gaming and education, right? Gamification is is huge, and there's a negative side to this as far as addiction and screen addiction and how long we're, you know, engaged with different kinds of games. Um, but I've mentioned this earlier, to, you know, in this podcast, like Google's vision here is that they've got the cloud computing capacity to pull this off, to basically have a Chromecast device and then a Wi-Fi controller. And instead of having a $300 console, Xbox, you know, switch, whatever, PlayStation, you're going to just be able to play off the cloud and the latency in, or delay is going to be so short and, and negligible in your internet connection. Um, that you're not going to need to have that massive processor sitting in your living room or your bedroom or whatever. You're just going to be able to play off the cloud. And so um, it is phenomenal. If you're not aware of how many teens watch other people playing games, and wait a minute, let's not say teens. Let's just say human beings. It's gigantic. We were talking today at lunch about, you know, some people that folks know who are just basically going pro with gaming. Like there's this this person that was being discussed who is so good at Fortnite, like people pay to just watch this guy play Fortnite and he's unbelievable in his skills. And so um, somebody mentioned, I think at the University of Oklahoma, um, now there is some, there is like an esports degree and they're like looking at this as, you know, something that can be studied and it, it's, it's a big thing, right? Like sports are a big thing. And so watching people play esports and then participating yourself in that, but the spectator part of it is obviously much bigger than the actual you're, you're playing, you're, you're playing and getting paid. Important to look at. Got another quick hit. I do. Uh, one last one, and I've missed it. Oh, Google has announced that it will be making cuts to its hardware division, including its laptop and tablet oh. development. And that's highly disappointing to me. I'm a Pixelbook owner, um, a very happy Pixelbook owner. It's it's the nicest laptop I've owned. Um, I've now owned a variety of Google devices that are really outstanding devices to kind of provide a reference device for other manufacturers to shoot for. There is a lot of uh, interesting uh, conversation going on on various Chrome OS blogs and news sources about what that means, whether it means that, that Google will have uh, future devices or not. Uh, most people assume that they will release some new Pixel Book 2 this year, which will be two years after the initial release in 2017. But I hope Google continues for a long, long time to release hardware because I think they're good at it. Absolutely. All right. Well, there are more articles that we will not have time to talk about. I will do my quick geeks of the week here. I mentioned screen cloud. I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, I have a link that I, I just wrote tonight. I titled it advice for responding to and protecting against phishing email attacks. I'll just say that I filed my first police report with our local police station this week because of an attempted fraud issue relating to phishing. Um, so it targeted tax are different than just a general, Hey, you know, send my, you know, I'm in Nigeria, send me money or whatever. Um, but, um, really important stuff, right? My, my mantra right now is continuing to be, be safe, be connected and tell stories. And the first one is be safe. So who is going to be the catalyst to be safe for your family, for your friends? Like this is really personal, right? None of us want to be the victims of identity theft. So, Fishing attacks are on the rise. There's some some hopefully good advice there. Um, this is the first show where I am enjoying our Google Wi-Fi, thanks in part to Jason and his endorsement. I've also recognized that you've got to decide who you're going to invest with and play with, right? Are you going to be an Amazon family? Are you going to be a Google family? I mean, Jason's kind of doing both, and he's got Apple and all this stuff going on, but we're very invested in the Google ecosystem. Let me say it's phenomenal, right? On my Apple, um, you know, what is it, Air... Uh, <laughs> Pod? No, it's not an AirPod. What's it called? The base station. Um, oh, Airport. Airport Extreme. Yes, yeah. it's the Airport Extreme that has all the storage and everything, which right. we don't even use. Uh, I mean, I could get a maximum of like 30 to 40 megs down in my house. I'm getting 
I mean, in some cases, 200. I've got a 300 meg down, uh, you know, internet connection. It's amazing. It's incredible. I can get basically 100 megs anywhere in our house. And I bought, you know, three different mesh routers. So thank you, Jason, for endorsing that. The fact that um, Amazon actually bought Eero, even though they've announced they're not going to share data and remain private, whatever. I'm, you know, I have uh, big issues with with Amazon in terms of, of, of privacy and Facebook in terms of trusting them. So yay, Google. Glad to have the, the Wi-Fi. Um, I put a video in this. If you're going to watch any video in our show notes, watch this. It's called The Storytellers Behind Apple TV Plus. This was shared during the Apple keynote. It's freaking amazing. Okay. Ron Howard, Steven Spielberg, all these just incredible directors talking about story and what makes story powerful and how a flow experience when we forget ourselves, when we lose ourselves in the story and the magic of cinema. It's, it's amazing, right? So watch this, share this with your kids, especially if you're going to encourage people to tell stories, which is a great thing to encourage people of all ages to do. And the very last thing is floorplanner.com, our middle school um, makerspace guru, uh, Eric Sappington shared this with me, and he is helping um, one of the classes of eighth graders actually design the possible layout of one of our labs that we're going to take cubicles out of and hopefully put flexible furniture in. And so they've taken measurements and created this and now kids are dropping furniture into it. And there's ways in which you can even put a map or, you know, if you have like a, a blueprint or whatever of a, of a, of a, of, of your building or whatever, you know, he showed me how you can then make that hyperlinked and it's going to be to scale. It's freaking amazing. And it's, you know, free. It's not AutoCAD. Um, but Google SketchUp has a fairly steep learning curve. This has a lesser uh, learning curve and it is completely free. Floorplanner.com. End of Wes's Geeks of the Week. Excellent. And I have a kind of quick one. Uh, Rico reported an interesting statistic on Monday that last year, American consumers spent more at Airbnb places than they did at Hilton places, which is a sign, ladies and gentlemen, that the shared economy, at least at this time, is uh, facing uh, even more popular growth. And I am a, a happy Airbnb customer. In fact, uh, I recently had a trip to California where my wife and I stayed in Palo Alto, California for two nights at an Airbnb. And we didn't have a super great experience on our, our, our last day there. And uh, we had a wonderful experience talking to the owner. He refunded us part of our money. And it's something we know would have never happened if we'd stayed, frankly, at a Hilton or other style property. And so I want to give one quick hint. Um, my wife and I do a lot of travel. In fact, we just booked a uh, trip to Albuquerque and Santa Fe, New Mexico. We'd never been. So we want to go and hang out there. We're going to go at the end of May. And uh, uh, very excited about that. But we found an Airbnb place there that was relatively inexpensive and a great location. But we use uh, what, what's called um, their super host. You can go in and mark off super hosts as the, your preferred provider there. A lot of Airbnbs in every town, but the super hosts have been vetted additionally from Airbnb and have a history of being good, successful Airbnb hosts. And so if you're leery to try the model, you've heard some of the horror stories, and I've heard a couple of them too, uh, when my wife and I use the service, it's because we, you know, only go to Superhost, people that have had extra vetting and have had a great experience with their guests. So my wife loves New Mexico. I do, too. We've done a lot of camping there. Um, we love Santa Fe. Um, there's a great uh, restaurant that you can do, uh, go to. Um, I'm trying to think. Sandia. So it's Sandia Peaks. It's the mountain that you'll see kind of up to the northeast. You can ride the tram up to the top and have a lovely romantic dinner. And it is beautiful. And look out. And, uh, you know, the, the slogan of New Mexico is the land of enchantment. And it truly is. So I hope you have a wonderful time. And we might have, there's also in the old town, I don't know, we could probably send you some different restaurant recommendations, but it's, it's great. You know, great, uh, Tex-Mex, um, food and, uh, really just a lovely climate and a wonderful place to go. So I hope you have a great trip and I'm excited that you guys are going to experience the land of enchantment. Outstanding. Well, Wes, where can the masses find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter and I am becoming more unleashed in my blogging because I have like not really done a lot of that, relatively speaking, in the last four years. And that is on speedofcreativity.org. 
And I am uh, Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter, where I post pretty regularly there. I don't like to, uh, well, not that I don't like to. I prefer if discussions are going to get uh, contentious or deep in something to pull it to another medium to do so. But I love to connect with people there and share resources and chat back and forth. I am also the Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence. Uh, and I blog at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog blog.ncc.org. And in fact, I'm releasing a tech savvy tip tomorrow. So uh, check out the blog and see what I'll be sharing with you this week. But this whole deal, it's not a blog. It is a podcast. This is the Ed Tech Situation Room. This was episode number 128. Um, and we are excited, as always, to come to you via either live means. You can come to uh, Ed Tech SR, where we post that link every Wednesday night at 7, not true, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time. Um, I think it's 400 UTC, 300, 200. But it's early. It's early. Yeah, it's the middle of the night in Europe. So better off probably not checking this out then. Um, you can come join our chat room um, and interact with us live and um, uh, uh, do that if you prefer. Or you can download us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. You can go to our website and download a little tiny version, MP3 version of it. Or you can always see YouTube. Until then, until next time, when we come back at you live, we hope you have a great day and you stay safe and stay savvy. Adios.